0: Yitro, which uh, covers uh, Exodus chapter 18, verses 20 through 23. And we also uh, picked up these passages in Isaiah chapter 6, and going into a bit of chapter 7, and also a very important prophecy that we got from uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 5 through 6. We also picked up a section, the beginning, you could say the preamble to uh, the Messiah's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 20. And then we also picked up what's known as the uh, the noble wife uh, section of Proverbs 31. Now with this, the reason why we picked up a number of these particular passages is The section that we're looking at in the Torah passage, Yitro, includes the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are very important. It's a a testimony of who the Lord is, a witness of the Holy One. And it's also a witness of heaven's plan for all of earth and humanity on earth because the lord is the one who can see le alam vied or over the horizon and beyond forever and ever and from that perspective to then give us a really important context for life here life is not just the here and now grab all you can go for the gusto and uh, be never looking to the future you're seeing the one Who has created everything and is now showing us how the best way to live life so that when you go over the horizon, so to speak, into the future, you are then now better prepared for what's ahead. That's like, think of it as like driving down. The road. I had the experience yesterday as I was going to a rural location, and it was on a a windy road. It was a one lane road, um, and you have to basically drive not looking ahead of you, but looking far ahead of you. Look around the corner as much as you can, because if you don't, there could be a delivery truck coming. The other direction on a one-lane road. And then you've got very few seconds, if maybe a second, to figure out what you're going to do about that delivery truck coming on the one-lane road. So in a similar way, the Ten Commandments, the testimony from heaven, is helping us to see around the corner, so to speak, over the horizon, so to speak, to say, what is really the better way to drive, so to speak, drive our lives? Are we just going to go through life on two wheels, um, one step away from going into the ditch or plowing into something? Or is it that we are driving with intention to get to the destination, but also get to the destination with a purpose, a goal in mind? So really from this then, you get from this view over the horizon. A question of identity, who am I? A question of purpose, why am I here? A question of goals, where am I going and how do I get there? So with those particular things, those are what we're going to be taking a look at here today. And from the Ten Commandments, this testimony of who God is, we get that a, an equation for life. We call it the quote, new birth. And we learn more about that as the story of the Exodus goes in and you go toward the promised land. But more than that, it is this new birth equals Sinai, what we just read about here today, meeting God, hearing from God, plus the Spirit of God equals what's known as the new covenant, the new covenant prophecy. That was foretold by the prophets of Israel and brought to its full power with the Messiah and brought to full power with the Spirit who the Messiah summoned to it is a bit of a tag team effort when the Messiah says, Hey, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send a comforter for you. So that starting point, the new heart desires. You got, you're directed by what you hear at Sinai, what we hear today in the Ten Commandments. And it's also powered by God's Spirit. You've got a destination and you've got a path to go. You get to know, meet the Holy One of Israel. And you get to know this new life without the stain of guilt, of sins, Transgressions and iniquities. We always talk about that. Sins, transgressions, iniquities. That's a that's a graduating scale upward. Sins, um, in the Hebrew form of chet, it's just missing the mark. It's it's specifically like an archer who's aiming at a target and you miss. You intended to hit the target, but you missed for whatever reason. And transgressions is eh, it's a little bit more willful than that you for whatever reason don't want to hit the target iniquities is like i'm not even going to shoot because i want to do something else i'm not going to fire this arrow i want to do something else you are rebelling so that's where it's a kind of a graduated effort you're trying to do something but you eh, for whatever reason you fail to transgressions, you're, you're chafing a bit at what you were instructed to do. To iniquities, you're in outright rebellion against it. We would call that treason if you're talking about within a country. So the result of this is that you walk in the way of righteousness. You know what you do, you know who you're doing it for, and you are empowered to do it because it really becomes a part of you. And that walking in the way of righteousness, just as we saw in the passage we read from Matthew chapter 5, is really you are walking as the Messiah walked. You are walking as Yeshua walked. It was was a big thing a while back. This is, what would Jesus do? Well, what would Jesus do? He tells us here in the beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount don't think I came to change the law and the prophets. In other words, what would Jesus do? He would do what Moshe would do. What Moses would do, he would do what Isaiah would do. He would follow along with what the prophets were talking about. But he, one thing he would not do is he walked it so that you wouldn't have to, which some, some people get that idea is that, well, Jesus kept the law so we don't have to. That's the whole wrong point of what the law is all about, and it's crystallized right in that passage we saw in Matthew 5.20, where it says that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, they know the intricacies of the law, down to the minute details, but Kind of similar to what we saw last week when we read through Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, what was the problem with the manna, with the revelation of Israel, the ones that died in the desert, as we're going to read, the first generation that didn't go into the promised land, they didn't combine the words with trust, with faith. They did not combine it with faith. They did not make it a part of them. It was just something on the outside. So, and one of the things that we see is that these, this new birth experience is memorialized in different stations, you might say. Some faith traditions have come, they call stations of the cross, and they take the, the Passion Week, the Passion Days, and they break it up into stations where you relive each part of the Passion Week, those days leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. Well, the appointed times of Israel are, you could say, stations of faith throughout the year. And then each month has one at the beginning, each week has one at the end. And they all are stations back to relive and look forward on these different faith experiences. So we see that, what is Israel? Israel is, as we've been going through Genesis, this is a people that was started because of Abraham called out of a land, called out of a land that was going in a different direction from God. And that started down to his son and then his son. So Abraham's grandson, Jacob, Yaakov, his name was changed. God changed it to Israel. Now, Israel could be translated two different ways. Israel can be translated two different ways. It could be translated as struggles with God. And you could see that with the, the account there in Genesis where Jacob, Jacob wrestling with heaven. He's wrestling with heaven. And it says he wrestled with heaven and prevailed. He got the blessing, the blessing passed along. The other way you could translate Israel is it could be rules with God. So very interestingly, rules with God, struggles with God. And then actually. Those two fit together, because in your ruling with God, ruling with God to help the earth go in the right direction, back to the one who started it to begin with, you have to struggle with God in this. How do you take the words of God and bring them into the world? Because you're dealing with a world that needs to detox from a life that is completely going in the opposite direction from the, to put it in different terms, the manufacturer's instructions. So you might say that the world has tried to do a hack on the words of God. (coughs) Tried (coughs) to do a, (coughs) excuse me, Tried to do a hack on the words of God, but that didn't really work that well. But one of the key things that we have here is a couple of really introductory points, both in Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 18. Now, 18, as we've discussed in times past, is chronologically out of place because as we go along in in Exodus and numbers, we'll see this same event that we read in Exodus 18. It will show up later chronologically in history, but we see why it shows up specifically here as put in, in this particular place because of what huge message comes forward through it and sam talked about that earlier as he was going through the torah passage and getting this realization of being freed from the house of bondage so we see in exodus 19 and 18 before it that we are prepping to meet god and also in the sense, learning to fly, because you keep seeing this passage about an eagle. An eagle. Now, man has been fascinated with flying and fascinated with birds because you, you look out there and they're just flying around. You see, you see the uh, the condors, buzzards. They just effortlessly follow the the thermals, just circling up, up, up glide down and they'll catch another one and they'll be up there for hours. Hours and hours and hours. Not even flapping. Hardly have to flap at all. Just gliding around. Being able to look from very high up to small things that are happening on the ground. You start seeing the the, the picture here. One who is up there just can be up there all day. Being able to look and see small things happening on the ground. Now, we've been fascinated by that because, I mean, which is faster, to fly to Los Angeles or to drive to Los Angeles? To fly, right. You know, get over boundaries, you can go faster, this and that and the other. So people have been looking to fly and you see like, um, you know, Leonardo da Vinci was doing um drawings and designs for flying machines. And you know, when you when you look at that and and physicists ended up trying to copy it later on to actually make machines. Yeah, you got a lot of the principles about lift in that very thing. He actually got it pretty pretty close. Is he studied birds and looked at birds. They fly. So why don't we just take a look at how their wings are built and try to fly ourselves and come up with different ways to fly we like to fly above things why because you you think about a disaster when they go and they take a look at a disaster like we had in the the floods out here with the the earthquake efforts that are going on in turkey and syria What they survey it by what tromping over the rubble or is it you get a bigger view of it by going up in the air to see what is going on. So we we yearn for this view from up in the sky. So in a starting point, as we build up to Exodus 19, where we get this passage that's really key, our first stop is in Exodus 18, this section that's really out of place. And we look at it, and we see... This particular passage, and you know, it's been people described it. Hey, you know, Yitro, Jethro was the first uh, management consultant. It was the first efficiency uh, advisor in the world to come in and say to Moshe, "Hey, you're you're going to have burnout here because you're taking all of this upon yourself. You're trying to make every decision, every judgment yourself. Delegate it. Give it out to other people." Great advice, but why is it then here in this particular passage? Why is it in a lead-up to this particular passage? Now, folk have noted that there are a number of both thematic and also linguistic word similarities between what you see here in Exodus chapter 18, and also what happened with Adam in the Garden of Eden, and some comparisons. I mean, the same words and phrases are used, where in Adam, the Lord said, it is not good for you to, what, be alone. Now, what was one of the observations that Yitzro had of Moshe? You are all alone. And it is not good for you to just be trying to do everything all alone. So, one of the things that you see in back in Genesis chapter 2, 3, you see that there is the observation hey, I need to have a partner. I need to have someone who is like me and can share in on this. And with Moshe, he is advised, Utro says, you need advisors, not only just advisors, but basically delegated judges. You need your own judiciary branch, levels of judges that are able to handle things from the, the dealings of 10 people up to 50 to 100 and up, and they are to take care of the things, small and successively more complicated things as they move up. And you see also that back in the garden, Adam is searching for a partner. And you see that the animals, all the animals, all of creation is brought before Adam. And he's like, there's no one like me. There's just no one suitable like me to do what I need to do here in the garden. And there in Exodus chapter 18, he is... Uh, It says that Moshe is to uh, do a search, to see, see through the people, someone who can fit this um, role as a judge. So he, back in the garden, Adam, finds this helper. And how does Adam describe Chava or Eve? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, like me. And she is like me, and she is from me. We're a part of a team. And then later on, Chava would become the mother of all living. And so you see that also this finding of a partner for Adam comes as, after he's given the instruction to, hey, you can eat of any tree here in the garden, but there is one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and bad, that you do not eat from. Because if you do so, in that day, dying, you will die. You will start the downhill slide into death. That is the tree of death. Better way to describe it. But the tree of life, who then is to help with that task of choosing between the trees? Now, very interestingly, when we get into Genesis chapter 3, one challenge is that the helper ends up with leading Adam to the tree of knowledge of good and bad, of death and we see that you see a riffing on it that the apostle paul says you know eve was deceived she was tricked but adam sinned and that sin there is more is more analogous to what you have in hebrew of transgression to almost iniquity so that was quite different so that helper even if she was tricked, Adam bore the responsibility. It's really, uh, yes, uh, Rose, you had a comment or a question here.
1: I have a theory about why he sinned. I think because he loved his new helper, he loved his wife. Uh, She had to be sent out of the garden, and I think he loved her so much, he was willing to take a bite of that apple To walk out with her and protect her outside the garden yeah so in a way he became Not he didn't become god but he came like god uh, to be a protector to be a helper so i i I, her sin i think was stupidity she she didn't know better she because she didn't hear the instruction that adam heard and so uh, I think Adam took that bite for her benefit. Mm. That's my theory.
0: Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting idea. One of the things that you, you do wonder is if it's a, a, a similar thing that you see expressed uh, with Abraham and uh, Isaac, where you see it riffed on in, in the Hebrews chapter 11, where it's like he knew— you see, Abraham knew that and he trusted God that even if it went as far as the life of his own son, his only son, that the Lord would bring about the promise through that son anyway. In other words, bring him back from the dead. So that you could say is a part of why Abraham is considered to be righteous is that he trusted God that God was able to do and he was able to see over the horizon. We ourselves may see, well, this is a no-win scenario. I've got to give in. Well, there might be the other option, like we saw in when we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 10 last week, that that way out is what? Enduring through it. Seeing the way to endure through it. Yes, uh, Larry. Well, Adam, however... Tried to blame God for it. <laughs> yes, that's right. The woman you gave me—that's right—wasn't a good strategy. No. <laughs> How typical. Yes, we're very typically uh, trying to blame people for our own f- uh, fables, <laughs> foibles, and failings. Yeah. Yes, uh, Tammy.
2: Yeah. Like I was reading this, this thing with the metro and all that. I loved verse 23 where it said, if you do this thing and God so commands you, then you'll be able to endure. So the thing you were talking about earlier with Moses and so on is he was doing literally everything. He was micromanaging yes. these people. And you could see you know, that this is not going to work in the long term because once he's gone, if since he's been micromanaging them, once he's gone, they're going to be like sheep without a shepherd. They're not going to have anybody to, to step up. But by being humble and being willing to div dive, you know, bring diversity, so to speak, and bring in all these judges and so on, he's training up the next generation so that, once he's gone, there will be people who can step up and the people will still have shepherds.
0: Yes, and you bring up something that is extremely important about um, the principle of delegation is that you are, in a sense, discipling. You are discipling those that will come on and eventually replace you. Because if they are not able to really handle this, then... Where does the legacy go? And you see that throughout Israel's history. You have one king, great, fantastic, loved the Lord. Then his kids just went off the rails. They're like, what happened? <laughs> they did not have that discipling of the next generation or the generations even after that to then come up and replace and carry that on to move up the chain. Yeah. Uh yes. And this Go ahead. It
2: goes on to I was reading the, the the notes in my Bible it says although Moses had done mighty works in God he was still only a man and needed wise counsel. Similarly wise leaders in the church seek the godly counsel of others for they are not dictators. Exactly. Rather they are counselors who seek the wise counsel of others and so that's what Moses did his father-in-law gave him advice and his his even his father-in-law said well take my thing what I'm advising you take it to God and if he agrees with what I'm saying this will help you. Yes. So there's a lot of humility that you're seeing exercised both on Moses' part and even Yitro's part That's saying, yeah, I think this is a good idea, you need to do this, but take it to God, and if God agrees with me, then this will help you.
0: Mm. Indeed. Yes, uh, Sean, you have a comment or a question over there?
2: Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's a theory, but I heard someone else share um, about the... Situation with uh, Adam and, and 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 Eve that the when they knew that they could eat of this and have the same knowledge as the father that was attractive to them. Why wouldn't they? They think they were doing something perhaps more complementary in 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 that relationship, but it was an error, obviously. I don't know. Just hmm.
0: Yeah, in seeking for that kind of knowledge that knowledge of god but not with the true ability to see over the horizon you know and you you see that with the (laughs) between generations when your parents instruct you about something and you think oh you're so wise i can handle it i can handle it well no you don't know what's what's coming down the road it's like I I remember some of the the great uh, huge um, collisions that happened in my life early in life because I thought I could handle it. And I thought I knew all that was going on. And small example of that is the first car wreck I ever got on. You you learn how to drive and go, I got it. No problem. Well, um, I, I learned how to drive in winter and... Yes, in Alaska. So um, I come up to a left turn, and one of the first things that you should learn when driving on ice and snow is that things do not happen as fast as you want them to happen on ice. And so when the green light came, I started to go. Well, I wasn't going as fast as I thought I was going to go, and so my path collided with another path of the oncoming traffic. So I thought I could handle it. No problem. You just step on the gas and you go. Well, you learn then is that you're spinning wheels. Your wheels are spinning and you're not going to actually get the traction you want. And then you think with, with relationships and your parents say, uh, yeah, that that girl is just bad news no i got it i i I can see what's going on here no no your parents can actually see over the horizon and see nah this is headed so the wise counsel of parents can say no this this one is going to drag you down and yeah i learned that one too which gets us to the passage we saw in proverbs 31 and how is that connected to what we saw in exodus chapter 18 Again, with a word, and that particular word is that Moshe was advised to, to go look for, and it's described in this particular translation, New American Standard, it says, able men, able men, to go look for them. Well, the word there in Hebrew is chiel, and chiel is also translated with, you might have heard, uh, David's mighty men, also his valorous men, um, They're very powerful, another way that's translated. It just means strength. They are extremely strong and capable in what they do. So thus, you could say, you are looking for these judges are supposed to be strong. And when we get further on in the Torah, we'll learn why they need to be strong. They need to be unbiased. They're not to favor one party over the other. Don't look at their life story and kind of tip your hand on the scale of justice just because of their life story. No, you look at the situation. Is it just? Is it unjust? You also don't take bribes. And on it goes for judges who have integrity and valor. They have to have strength to stand up against the mob that comes after them to say, no, you must rule this particular way. Well, the same word, Chiel, shows up in Proverbs 31 talking about the wife. This wife is heel. She is strong. And you see why she's described as strong. The husband is able to delegate the running of the house, including investments, real estate investments of the house and of the children and the business dealings, everything. Just delegate that off. She's strong. She can handle it and she can take care of it, and he doesn't have to worry about what the next generation is going to be like, because she has got that too. She is strong in that. So whatever the strong aspects are that she has to fight against, she can do it. Now, the one thing that you see the advice that comes through in Apostle Paul, and it's completely misunderstood in our modern culture and he talks about women as the weaker vessel and we we can sit back in our our nice air-conditioned nice heated homes and nice things with our police departments and such and look at this and go what are you talking about the weaker vessel well when you're dealing with a brutal world and that's what the Paul was writing in a brutal time period where people would get robbed, mugged, hauled off into slavery on a regular basis. If the Romans weren't around to keep the peace in that brutal world, physical strength is important. So just statistically, just anatomically, the women are the weaker vessel, except if there is a multiplying power. You see, like, you know, today, people who um, are skittish about the ability for people to defend themselves will say, Why does a woman need to have a firearm permit? Well, it's like, if a woman is up against some big guy, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, she is toast. However, if she has the multiplying power of it, Look out. Yeah, look out. There is an equalizing effect. And you see, it's also happened throughout time, where women in places of power who have the power of the state, they can wield it and become extremely powerful because they have the power of the state behind them. You see, like, right now, you have the co-dictator of North Korea. His sister, his sister is what they call her, the iron queen is what the South Koreans call her. Um, She is a co-dictator. She is extremely strong. No one messes with her whatsoever. Yes, Deborah is another thing, but her power is more like in the power of the heel that you see in Proverbs 31. That power, the integrity of it was such that a, Leader with physical powers, pretty much deferred. Hey, I can't do what I need to do in the battlefield unless you, with your moral power, are here with me. And see, that is one of the the key aspects of what we're talking about here. Is with judges, you have a moral power, moral strength to move through it and keep going. And you see also, when we get over into the the corollary in John chapter 13, verses 17, where you've got one of the last messages that Yeshua does to the disciples, his key closest uh, students, he says that, I must go so that the comforter can come, which is very interesting because, as we've talked about before, one of the Messianic terms for the Messiah himself is Nachem or the Comforter. So when you see the term Nahum or Manachem, the one of comfort, that is a term for the Messiah. So the Comforter promised has to send the Comforter. It's like a tag team there, tag team Comforters. The Messiah is the Comforter. The Spirit of God is the Comforter. The Word of God is the Comforter. The Spirit of God is the Comforter. So that's what we were saying earlier is about why Sinai plus the Spirit equals the New Covenant, equals that new life
3: that you have in there. Uh, ben and I, yes. Could we say that the the moral power that judges were imbued with that power came from the Spirit of the Lord versus like other kings that they came against at the time wicked rulers or even those that did not have that moral compass because they weren't yielding to the wisdom and knowledge of God which comes from the tree of life versus the un- versus familiar spirits in the world and the and the ways of men and the carnal understandings and the ways of the flesh and those those understandings and would that be okay to say that
0: Yeah that's that's a really good way to put that because that yeah. is Getting to the heart of what we just read in in Matthew Matthew 5, verse 20, where it says that your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, that is the nuts and bolts of the Torah. You know the details. Okay, great. How do you apply it? How do you apply it with the same intent of the author? That's the Word plus the Spirit. That's what you need. And you see that really brought forward here in this uh, passage where the Apostle Paul is talking about <laughs> people that need to judge your own uh, foibles and problems within the congregation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have read just recently 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, moving on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 1, starting in verse 1. Does any one of you when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church or the ecclesia? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord, Yeshua Mashiach, and in the spirit of our God. Yeah. Thus were some of you. That was who we were. We're not those people anymore. So we were different before. God took us out and moved us forward, not because of how fantastic we are, but because of the great work of Yeshua covering over sins, transgressions, and iniquities. And the Spirit of God taking that work that was started and bringing it to completion on the day of the lord so that that's what we see here and we talk about can't you take care of the things in the smallest law courts and it almost seems like a reference back to what we just read in exodus chapter 18 where you have like the smallest law court 10 can't you just handle something at that level that no you're having to drag things into court matters between believers thus we get councils like you have in in matthew chapter 18 where you get that framework that the messiah brings forward with how you settle with disputes someone has something against you you go and you work it out you go you work it out with them privately that doesn't work Take somebody who's a very trusted solid person, one of those ch'il type of people, someone who's mighty with valor before the Lord, you take them with you. see if that works. If that doesn't work, okay, then you take them to the assembly. but you are dealing with this here as a body of believers now of course, as we always talk about this kinds of thing, for those things that they're immediate you got to take care of it and deal with this now. Those types of matters, you have to ratchet it up. Like if you're talking about some sort of abuse or assault or something just really grievous like that, you know, you got to bring in the big gun, so to speak, and deal with it immediately so that you take care of it. Which then brings us to the next section that we looked at. So we looked at Exodus chapter 18. And we've seen this this connection here with the helpers, this helper, um, similar to what you see with Chavar or Eve brought in for Adam. They're in the garden, and together they form a unit. They form a strong team together. They are echad, they are one together. Thus, now, you see, moving on into chapter 19, this fantastic passage in 19 four, where it says you yourselves have seen what i did to the egyptians and how i bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself now that in that passage as part of kind of the longer passage in verses 3 through 8 of exodus chapter 19 that see how i bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself And then, now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, it's like, okay, so you have this people that is brought out of slavery to be the creator of heaven and earth's possession, to be really his own. To do what? To be a, a secret club where you just kind of get together and shoot the breeze? Or is it where it talks about you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? A priest to whom? Now, when we we're going to go into, in uh, coming weeks, the book of Leviticus, and we get to see the ins and outs of the priesthood, and that's the priesthood for Really, starting with Israel, you have a certain family of Israel. They are the priests, and then the rest of the people of Israel then work through the priests to come to the Lord's presence. But here, the Lord is giving the grander vision. The grander vision is that the whole people of Israel they are to be priests to whom the world. They are to be a priest to the world. And we've read these passages when we get around to Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. That is one of the things we celebrate at that time period, where you see that heaven is going to make its dwelling place with mankind. And you see that as a forerunner and a memorial for the word made flesh that tabernacled among us. Yeshua, the Messiah, dwelt among us. And we just read about one of those particular prophecies here today in Isaiah chapter 9, that he would be the government of heaven, the government of earth would be upon his shoulders. And this is something that's kind of a very interesting. This is from an evangelical source this particular commentary understanding the Bible commentary series is an evangelical source so one of the things when you have conversations with people and they talk about you know the Torah being bondage the law um, you need to be freed from the law of God because it is bondage um, yes but I guess before we get into this I'm um, just
3: wondering about the uh, the priesthood now aren't we also priests unto the Lord and then yes. also the world that's right and with the with this would this fit with the conjunction is that to love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and all thy mind, a priesthood unto the Lord, and then basically to love thy neighbor as thyself, the world. I mean, could we not apply like you know the priest unto the Lord, but also to the world, you know, to go out? I mean, would that that's
0: happen? that's what the Ten Commandments is all about. Okay. Where you see those first depending on how you divide them, four commandments on that relationship between you and heaven then the rest of them is about you and the world but the whole point of that is to do what just to get along have great conversation or is it to draw people to the connection to the creator of heaven and earth to reestablish that connection with the entire world yeah um rose yes go ahead
1: yes i'd like to read in isaiah 30 starting in 19 for the people shall dwell in zion at jerusalem and you shall weep no more he will be very gracious to thee and at the voice of the cry when he shall hear and he will answer you and though the lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction yet shall not thy teachers key word here be removed into the corners anymore, or thine eyes shall see thy teachers, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk you in it. When you turn to the right hand and to the left, you shall defile also the coverings. Well, I just wanted to read that one to verse 21. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be be teachers, and we're going to say, This is the way, walk you in it.
0: And that's what we do now. Yes. And that, that is why uh, we're, we're going to get to a particular passage that really emphasizes this role of teaching for the world, but teaching here now and teaching in how we act and how we live in the, in the world. Now, this particular passage, just bringing it up here, um, it says uh, from this Understanding the Bible commentary series, they had seen quote, what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself, unquote. The Lord spoke very personally, saying, I did, I carried you, I brought you to myself. The point is that the Lord who brought them out of bondage, who carried them through their fears in the wilderness and who brought them beyond those external and internal forms of oppression to worship God, they did not seek God before God sought them. They did not begin keeping laws or making sacrifices. They simply cried out for help. Their relationship with God began with God's own unexpected mercy and provision. Moses expands the reference to the Lord carrying Israel and eagle's wings in his song at the end of the wilderness sojourn in Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting verse 10 and 11 there. So, It's one of these key things that you can emphasize with with people and just note, hey, um, this was never a plan A, you follow the law, plan B, here comes the Messiah. This has always been the way this has gone from the very beginning. You have to have a relationship with heaven because otherwise you're just bolting on stuff on the outside And never changing the inside. Never changing the inside. So, thus, when you look at this, uh, as his commentary brings out, the companion passage where you see this passage of, I carried you on eagle's wings. You see expressed there, you know, like an eagle hovers over its young, he spreads his wings and he caught them. It's a very, as he's remembering, And recalling back, this is to the second generation after the Exodus. First generation, they died out because they didn't have the faith to go in. When God said, hey, the promised land is yours. The walls may be big. The giants may be big. But you're not the one who has to really worry about those. Just trust, move forward toward them. Move forward toward the walls, toward the giants. Because the Lord has got your back on this. They said, "Ah, we can't do this. Well, in truth, yeah, they couldn't. And they found out quickly thereafter when they tried to go in themselves and (laughs) they had their hat handed to them, uh, so to speak. So this particular full passage there in Deuteronomy 32, really verses 9 through 12, Moses is telling the second generation, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled them. He cared for them. He guarded them as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided them and there was no foreign god with him so amen when you see this that the lord caught them carried them you see this expressed then further on in isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 remember if remember when you've read this passage before in isaiah 40 you know as it starts out you think oh i'm just a worm because it says you're just People are just grass. You're going to burn up. You are really temporary in the scheme of things. And as you you go through this passage, the reason why all that language is there that, hey, you people are just like grass, and you're temporary. Just to say, you are not as important as you think you are. But when you get down to this, passage here in verse 31 it says yet those who wait for the lord will gain new strength will gain new strength they will mount up with eagles uh, with wings like eagles they will run and not get tired and they will walk and not become weary so one of the the things that you see in this particular passage is that this is to a generation that really has become full of itself, you might say. That generation that Isaiah 40 was really calling to, they were full of themselves. Now, also in there is a passage that's quoted in the Gospels where it says, Hey, I'm like a voice crying out in the wilderness. But Make straight the ways of the Lord, and that is something that is talked about about you know John the Baptist, Yohanan. He is one who comes in the Spirit, like Eliahu El- Elijah the prophet. He was coming to make straight the way. Make straight the way how? And that way of that's an ancient talk. That's like if you have some important leader coming, you fill the potholes. You spruce the place up. So it is a nice ride. It's a nice ride for the important person who's coming. So that filling the potholes, so to speak, was what Yohanan was doing when he was saying, hey, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around, turn back to the Lord, go the other direction. And saying to the leaders at the time period, who just like what we read in Isaiah chapter 6, which is another passage you see in the Gospels, referred to why is it that Yeshua taught in parables? And it, it goes in there because you'll be seen and really not understand. You'll hear. You won't get it. So why is it coming to you in parables? Because otherwise, if it did not come to you in parables you would turn around and be healed. And we've talked about this before. It seems like it's a really gotcha sort of thing. It's like the heaven is sending parables so you won't understand. But what do we see in the Gospels? When it says that Yeshua was going to the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd, they heard the shepherd's voice. Those who, who wanted to understand who wanted to know they heard the shepherd's voice those shepherds supposedly who were put in the role of shepherds they did not want un- to understand and what did they do they attacked the good shepherd they attacked the shepherd sent from heaven i'm sorry that ben and i go ahead please
3: uh I was, I was i'm in agreement with you on that you know they they were supposed to be the teachers of uh, righteousness uh, of the way and uh, they had strayed from that and there was just a lot of uh, grievous things going on in God's house lots of things uh, misappropriations uh, idolatries uh, making his father's house a den of thieves um, I, th- I believe that you know John how he he really brought to light you know by the lord he brought to light his his calling to ma- make that way you know to let people know that this this isn't the way you know that that you know there's one greater you know yeshua who is coming and uh i also believe that even today like there's so much going on in the churches where people are thinking that this is righteousness they think that this merchandising these idolatries um, that this is God, that this is the way of righteousness when it's uh, Laodicean at best. And there needs to be those, once again, that are like John, that will herald, shine their light, and proclaim the coming of Yeshua. You know, he's coming again. You know, and and, and to make that way straight, because the paths have gotten crooked, I mean, there's a lot of crookedness going on um, in churches and gatherings and, and profiting and those things again. I just... Uh, Thinking about that when you're talking.
0: Yeah. Indeed. Which is why then you see another passage where you see that picture of a bird carrying over the flock. You see, Yeshua said in Matthew twenty three, thirty seven, after a really scathing list of rebukes against the religious leaders of the time period, the shepherds who were supposed to be shepherding the flock. But what were they doing? Scattering the flock trying to sheep steal each other's flocks. Yeshua said, talking about to Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling, unwilling to be gathered. And really, when you go back and you look at this this particular passage and its context, you can start seeing what the issue was. If you roll back it into verse 29 of chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then. The measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, and the son of Bechariah, and uh, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling... Behold, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, baruch haba Adonai. That great messianic prophecy, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember, we just read that in the Ten Commandments, that you will not take the name of the Lord in vain. Or as more literally it said you will not hold the name of the lord with um no effect make it to no effect so thus if you are taking a name again is reputation what a person is known for so if you make the reputation of the lord of no effect where when people hear it they think "Eh, who cares or worse uh, they shrug, they get angry because of what the reputation of the Lord has been made into. So thus, when you see, and it comes down into the day of the Lord, you see a passage again of eagle's wings. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. From the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. Amen. And so when you see in Revelation chapter 12, you see that this is a woman. How is she described? Sun on her head, 12 stars, standing upon the moon. Does that sound familiar at all? Remember one of the dreams? Who had that dream? Yosef had the dream. And he was describing whom? He was describing, yes, the family of Israel, the brothers. His father and his mother talked about the sun and the moon and then the 12 stars, the brothers. So you're talking about, you have this woman described, you the symbolized then Israel and the male child as you read the whole chapter 12 you see that is clearly talking about the messiah coming the dragon the adversary going to go after the woman and go after the child uh yes go ahead sam
3: yeah i think uh, this passage is um uh misinterpreted and misunderstood by the catholic this is where you know the exhortation of the Holy Mary came from, so and I, I don't know whether you know mm. uh, they are kind of getting it right or they're off the track so mm. <laughs> so I don't
0: know yeah that's why you know following the symbols back to where they come from is always helpful to uh, see what is being referred to originally. That's why um, a lot of the symbology that you see in. The book of Revelation comes from the book of Ezekiel. There's also a lot from the book of Daniel and some of the other prophets as well, but Ezekiel and Daniel are huge sources for the symbols that you see in Revelation. So for example, you know, what is the mark of the beast? You see that referred to in the book of Ezekiel. You see what that's referred to, the mark of you see it contrasted in the book of Revelation between the mark of the beast and the mark of God. So uh, yes, uh, Sean's got a comment over here. But you have the mark of the beast and the seal of God. So what is the seal of God? The seal of God is put on the forehead, meaning that is your, uh, really the heart of what you think, what you feel, what your whole drive, your passion is that is sealed, that belongs, is devoted to God. All those who are weeping and crying, lamenting, crying out to God, like at the beginning of the book of Exodus, who are in bondage, crying out for a deliverer, they are saying, hey, the situation of the people of God has gotten to be so bad. Please send a deliverer. That is where they are sealed with the mark of God, the seal of God. The corollary, mark of the beast, you get that either in the forehead or you can get it in the hand. And just like what you see in, as we say every week with the Deuteronomy chapter 6 with the Shema, that you will put the words of God on your forehead and on your hand, that you will do them. And as we see going on with the New Covenant, these are the laws of God that are written into and upon your heart. So eventually, it is centered in on your mind, on your heart, that that is the core of where the words of God are. But for the beast power, they can be something you do, but don't believe it, or you're a true believer on your forehead. Yes. Uh, go ahead.
2: Uh, um, was it clarify this for me? I think I heard someone recently say the reason why this is like "quote unquote" cryptic in Revelation is because John had to be careful of what was
0: seen that he wrote. On oh yes, the uh, the great "we don't want to offend Rome" theory.
2: Is that what it was? I don't
0: know. <laughs> um, considering what a lot of the others went through at the particular time period, I don't think that was what the apostles were worried about. Because uh, they they took plenty of swings at at Rome throughout time, so uh, we come to the end of what we are going to be talking about here today. Hopefully, one of the things that you'll see in the midst of this is that the what we just saw in Revelation chapter twelve that these testimonies of God and the commandments of God, the testimony of Yeshua. Who is Yeshua? Who is the word of God? What are the words of God? Where are they written? Are they written just on our hand? Are they written on our forehead? Meaning they're deep in a part of who we are, as the Bible says, written on your heart. And then come out through your hands into what you do. Is that where we are really connected to God? So thus, that we see that the coming to Sinai, being carried from the house of bondage to meet God, to get the testimony of God at Sinai, that combined with the helper sent from heaven, the Spirit of God, that then takes us into a new person of who we are. This is not some external thing that's posted up on our wall, you know, put on our dashboard of our cars. But this is something about who we are inside of us. We always talk about character. When you strip everything away, who are you? That's character. And that is what heaven is building, is building character. Not just blind automatons who just stagger about like robots, but character of people who are changed from the inside. So that is who we are when everything falls off. And you see that throughout time when people are truly transformed, the martyrs that to this day in places of the world, they are willing. To say, look, I don't care if you take my life. Bending my knee to something that is going to destroy the world, to an ideology that's going to destroy the world, that's not worth it just to stay alive one more minute. Because, what, I can stay alive, something else will take me. But there is something more important. Or as Yeshua says, there's something worse than death. There is something worse than death, to lose who you are, as it says, to lose your soul, to have that destroyed. So that's we'll end things here today. As we pick up next week, we'll start unpacking and going further into the explore, exploration of the Ten Commandments. If you see in the bulletins, we included an outline of the book of Deuteronomy, because as we see in Deuteronomy, there is... It really seems to be that a good section of Deuteronomy is laid out like an explanation of the Ten Commandments. What does each of the Ten Commandments look like in, in everyday life and in the world? Uh, you start seeing a lot of explanations for that in the book of Deuteronomy, which some people say is why you see it quoted in the gospel so much, the passages from Deuteronomy, is because that is like, that's the testimony of God brought into um, how you actually live it out. So I'll close things out with that. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, halal dot info.